Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed of his word, because of his word. The word of the Lord. You know, Hollywood, Hollywood loves a good midlife crisis. From the seven-year itch back in the 1950s with Marilyn Monroe to the early 90s city slickers, to more dark pieces recently like American Beauty or Lost in Translation. They have this idea of the man hitting his midlife and looking at his life and then throwing it all away for something else. That crisis of identity is actually a misnomer. Most psychologists would agree that there is no such thing as a midlife crisis as if it only happens during a certain period. Rather, throughout our lives, we are given to the potential for a crisis, for a time when everything seems to fall in on us and we start asking those bigger questions and we don't seem to have answers to them. Who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose and meaning and identity? Is this life I'm living amounting to what I thought it would? Is this all there is? 
In other words, it's, it's not constrained to a certain 20-year period. It can happen to anyone at any age, no matter how successful or difficult their life has been. Consider, for instance, the interview that was done a number of years back by Steve Croft of 60 Minutes with Tom Brady, the just-winning quarterback of the New England Patriots. I've quoted this here before, but I think it's so insightful that, that we should go back to the sage, Tom Brady, for what he had to say about life. Now, again, this is Tom Brady, just after he'd won his third Super Bowl, been named league MVP, and at the time he was dating Giselle Bunchen, his now wife, a supermodel. And he says, on all this success, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? A lot of people would say, I reached my goal, my dream. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. And what else is there for me? We are seeking satisfaction. We pursue things that will give us hope, meaning, purpose. Those sorts of questions of asking, who am I? What makes me happy? What satisfies me? Usually causes us to go in a certain direction with our life. And there are certain things you can put your life into that are more noble directions for this sort of question and answer. It's more noble to say, I'm going to pursue my family or doing good, making a good impact on the world. We would usually say in our culture, it's a little less noble when the only thing you're seeking in life is career success or money or materialism, building up as much stuff as you can. And of course, there's some things that people pursue to answer their questions of satisfaction and meaning that are completely destructive. Addictions to alcohol or pornography or gambling. But the question that I want us to ask this morning is what do we turn to to quench our thirst? And does it satisfy us? And is it perhaps, even if it's a good thing, is it meant to point us to something more? In John chapter 4, a woman meets Jesus at a well in Samaria. As she's heading down to the well, she's doing fine. But then Jesus gets personal with her. He always seems to do that. He digs a little deeper to the root, to her heart. And he asks the question, is your source of satisfaction sufficient? And he says, because only I am. Only I am sufficient. It's helpful to look at the, the setting of this story and really kind of unpack it from that, that perspective in order to understand what's going on here. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I go back to it again and again, like those movies that I watched 20 or 30 times as a, as a kid, as a teenager, that I could quote verbatim. I go back to this one because I'm just blown away by what's going on here. And I want you to see some of what's going on in this passage. First, it's the setting. The setting is this. We have a Samaritan village, a well and a woman, right? Now, Jews and Samaritans do not coexist. It was so much so that if you were a Jew like Jesus in that day and age, you would go out of your way 
to go around a Samaritan village or neighborhood. You would weave around it, but Jesus, of course, goes right through it. It was well known in rabbinic circles that Jews and Samaritans did not share vessels in common. If a Samaritan sat on a chair, it was defiled. You couldn't then sit on it without being defiled yourself. If a Samaritan ate off of a plate, even if the plate was then washed, because the Samaritan ate off of it, you could never eat off of it. It was defiled. You too would be defiled if you ate off of it. To be defiled meant you couldn't participate in the community. You couldn't go to church. You couldn't celebrate Christmas, as it were. It was a culture and a cultural divide filled with racism, much like segregation, not too long ago here in the U.S., where they live over there and we live over here, and that's their bathroom, and this is our water fountain. It's a Samaritan village, and Jesus takes up residence at a well outside of that village. Now, the well in any village was essential to community life. You built a city near a well. You dug a well because that was where your lifeblood was. In that culture, in that region, in that country, it was dry. The well was where the entire community went for that life-giving water. It was also the way that the community provided hospitality to travelers, which in that day and age was incredibly important. The fact that they had a well enabled travelers to stop there and refresh themselves and their animals. The way that well culture went, and some of you have heard this before, was that in the mornings or in the evenings, groups of women would go out with their jars and vessels, and together they would go out and fill up the water and bring it back to their houses. This was a corporate event partly for community and friendship. It was where they shared the stories of their lives and talked to each other and connected. They didn't have a coffee shop or a glass of wine. They went to the well. And they went together because it was also proper and safe to go together. We have a Samaritan village, we have a well, and we have a woman. Jewish rabbis wrote that it was inappropriate to speak to a woman in public unless she was a relative of yours. So unless she was your wife, your daughter, your mother, your aunt, you could not talk to a woman in public It was inappropriate, scandalous, provocative. A Samaritan village, a well, and a woman. And Jesus seems to enter and blow it all up. Here's the setup again. We read in verse 7, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, we read a verse earlier that she came to draw water because it was the sixth hour. Sixth hour means noon. And of course, as we've mentioned, women went in groups in the morning and the evening. She comes by herself to draw water. And you've heard this before if you've been in churches where somebody's preached on this. Why did she come by herself in the middle of the day? It's one of two reasons. Either... She's an outcast in her village. She has a bad reputation in town, and no other woman will be associated with her. Or she's looking for travelers. She knows that this is the time of day when you go to the well to meet men who might be on the road. Or both. Jesus says to her, 
give me a drink. Think about the humility and the humanity that's in Jesus in his opening words to her. First, he's, he's weary and tired. We talk about Jesus as God's son in Christian circles, but he was weary and tired. He was thirsty. He was fully man. And then he speaks to this woman. Give me something to drink. Now, this woman, who was an outcast in her village, did not have people speaking to her. If you were an outcast in a village, people disowned you. They avoided you. Like the homeless panhandler that we pretend like doesn't exist and we just walk right by. Everywhere she went in this village, people walked right by her. She could probably go for days on end without her neighbors. The people she grew up with even saying hi. They didn't want to be associated with her. So when Jesus addresses her with words, he's, he's reaching out with incredible dignity to her, saying, you exist, and I want to know you. And then, when he says, give me something to drink, he's elevating her. Because he's in need, she's placed in a position where she can give something to him. To be in that position of giving something to somebody was to be in a position of honor in that community. To provide hospitality to a traveler was to bring honor to your village. Jesus not only gives her dignity, but elevates her with his humility, honoring her as a person. But of course, there's something else going on here. This entire scene was provocative and scandalous. One rabbi wrote that when a woman entered a public place and you were not related to her, there was a proper way to deal with the situation. What Jesus should have done as he was sitting on that well and sees the woman coming, he should have gotten up, walked 20 paces away, turned his back to her, let her draw water from the well. When she was gone, he could have turned around and gone back. he stays right there. Give me a drink, he says. And what does the woman say? Her reply is, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, on one level, this is making the contrast between Jews and Samaritans, like black and white in the segregation era. But actually, what's also going on here is that she's emphasizing their gender differences, She's saying, how come you, a Jewish man, because that Jewish, that Jew was a male way of uh, intonating it, how, how is it that you, a Jewish man, ask for a drink from me, a woman, and then that word Samaria is actually a Samaritan female? How can you ask from me, a woman, a Samaritan woman? There's a lot that's being implied in her statement. She's suggesting things that Jesus isn't suggesting. I know why you want a drink from a woman like me. You're not really looking for water, are you? What is it you're really after, buddy? But Jesus is not like every other man. Jesus says, if you knew 
who it was that you're speaking to, the very gift of God. You'd ask me, and I would give you living water. Look, you drink from this well, and you will thirst again. But I have come to give you drink from a well that will spring up into you as water, welling up to eternal life. The woman says, give me some of this water so that I don't have to be thirsty again. You see, she still thinks he's talking about a very specific physical thing. Again, in that culture, in that land, that very dry land where wells and springs and rivers were essential to life, people were used to building their entire lives around going to the well, building houses and villages near springs. they, They knew the destructive nature of not having water. To be a traveler in that day and age was dangerous just because rule of law was not really in place, but also because you never knew where your next sip of water was going to come from. Probably every person, including this woman, had experienced the kind of thirst that none of us have ever experienced. Never thirsty again? I'll take some of that. But of course, Jesus is using a critical physical need H2O, water, to point to a deeper and spiritual need. He's telling her, asking her, what is it you really want? What is it that you're after in life? And where is it that you're looking? Jesus digs deeper. So he says to the woman, call your husband. And she says, Well, I have no husband. Jesus replies, you were right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you you have now is not your husband. There's a word play between husband and man so that what Jesus is saying could also be read this way. You are right in saying that you have no husband. You have had five men and the man you are with now is not your husband. She had gone through men in her life. And if we're going to look at her the way Jesus does with eyes of compassion, we would ask the question, what has she endured in life? What sort of loss? What sort of abuse? How had her teenage dreams, possibly as a young bride, been dashed? How had her life been broken? What would cause her to turn again and again and again to men? For security? For her identity? For hope? For love? But of course, love and sex without covenant turns us and others into a commodity. It becomes a commercial exchange of goods and services. I'm in it so long as it pays. But as long as I'm getting what I want, I'm here. But as soon as I'm not really getting what I want, I'm going to go look elsewhere. I'll shop in another store.
Jesus exposes her secrets and her shame and her guilt because he wants her heart. And he does the same with us. What do you need most? What do you desire deep down in? What are you after? What do you turn to? Where do you look for satisfaction? Success in your career, in raising your family, in school? Acceptance, approval of people, popularity, a spouse that loves and adores you? Where do you turn for satisfaction? Comfort, ease, pleasure? This woman, it appears, was turning to love and sexuality towards men. Sex is a very powerful well. Watch some of the Super Bowl ads tonight. Not everyone will use sex to sell something, but a lot of them will because marketers know it is a powerful draw. And if you can associate their drink with this woman, you will buy the drink thinking you will also get the woman. Brains become confused because we want something and we think it will make us happy. We today in our culture see sex as a need, like air and water. I have to have it. And we consider it essential to happiness. Watch any sitcom for more than a few weeks, and you will find that the level of happiness of any character is based on how great the sex is that they're having. And we even tie our identity to it. I can't be me if I can't use this. Sex is a very powerful well. But it can also be a very dry well. It can be one that dries up very quickly and leaves us dead. What well are we looking in? And is it a dry well? You know, Jesus doesn't say to the woman, stop prostituting yourself. Don't commit adultery. Stop having sex outside of marriage. He actually could have said any of those things because it's in the Bible. The Bible is pretty clear about the whole sex thing. And Jesus even takes it a step further in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And I say, don't look at a woman lustfully. But Jesus doesn't condemn her. What does he say? He says to her, you're seeking love and comfort and hope and satisfaction in the wrong well. It's not that you aren't thirsty, but what you're really looking for is me. Rather than condemning her, which he could have done as God and Lord, he's wooing her, saying, I want to offer you something more than what you're settling for. You are made 
to know my love, my comfort, my hope. You're made to find your identity in me. Today in our individualistic culture, we have made our needs and our desires ultimate. And so for anyone to tell me no to what I want is to infringe on my basic humanity. Our vocation, our family, our career, our success, our comfort, sexuality, all these things are actually meant to point us to God. But we have turned them into gods. The Bible gives us a different picture. It says when we trust God, when we follow his intentions and limits for our minds, for our bodies, for our money, for our life choices, for our relationships, and we look to him to meet our needs, we will be satisfied. God does not deny our humanity. His ways allow us to become fully human for the first time as we were meant to be in Eden and as we will one day be in heaven. So, I think even sex is not intrinsic to being fully human. You know what is? Knowing God. Knowing God is. Finding the true well. As the woman approaches the well, you can imagine her going down towards the well with her jug in the middle of the day, and she sees a man, a strange man sitting at the well. And she turns the red light on. She's known many men. And she's thinking to herself, I'm sure this man wants to know me too. But Jesus already knows her more than any man could. And in the conversation, Jesus exposes her exposes her nakedness and her shame. But not to get something from her, but to give her something. Not to use her, but to heal her and restore her. And she sips from the well of love for the first time. The love of God. The love she's made to know. not very different with us. Jesus knows everything, everything we've ever done and everything that's ever been done to us. And he still loves us. And he wants to exchange our false wells for living waters to know and experience his love. What we desire most, what we turn to to quench our thirsts, is what we worship. Jesus concludes the conversation with the woman talking about worship. He says, the time is coming and now is, now is because I'm here. The time is coming and now is when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The woman goes on to say in verse 25, when the Messiah comes, he'll tell us all. And then... Jesus says, 
when the Messiah comes, he'll tell you all, I who speak to you am he. In, in that phrase, I who speak to you am he, it's actually, uh, Jesus is, is saying something a little more powerful than that. He's, he's saying, I am. I am the one speaking to you. He's saying, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am the Christ, the Messiah. But he says it this way, I am the one speaking to you. And that phrase, I am, is ego a me in the Greek. It's the same phrase that the Lord God tells to Moses in the wilderness at the burning bush when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? And God Almighty, the creator of the universe, says, ego a me. I am. Tell them I am sent you. So when Jesus is fully revealing himself to this woman, he's saying, the Christ, the Messiah, I am. I am he. I am God and I am Savior. You are made to worship God. You are made to worship God through me. I am the source of living water. You can almost see the spring beginning to bubble up inside the woman. She goes, in verse 28 and 29, running to her village, dropping her jar behind, going to tell the people in the village, come and see. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. And they come. Why do they come? Because for the first time in years, she's willing to admit, to open up to her brokenness and guilt and shame in front of them. She's openly repenting as she's running around the village, knocking on doors, saying, there's a guy who knows everything I ever did. And they're like, yeah, we know. I don't care if you know now. When you've met Jesus, you have nothing to hide anymore. You know, we go around covering up and hiding from Adam and Eve, trying to sow fig leaves and trying to duck when Jesus, when the Lord God is coming in the garden to today when we put on masks, pretend we know that if you come to a place like this, you've got to look pretty good on the outside. And this woman, because she has met Jesus, doesn't care anymore. The difference between a follower of Jesus and somebody who's merely religious is not the avoidance of sins, it's the willingness to confess them openly. It's not our goodness that makes the gospel appealing. It's authentic humility that comes from admitting our sinfulness. Her defenses are down. She opens up. She repents publicly. The townspeople are amazed. They come to see and many believe in Jesus. And think about the great exchange that Jesus makes for her. She thinks she's coming to get something by giving something. Instead, Jesus gives and gives and changes everything for her. She came down to the well cynical. She leaves joyful. She comes down to the well guarded. She runs into town open. She comes down to the well guilty in her sinful lifestyle. She leaves as a disciple of Jesus. She is an outcast in her community at the beginning, but because of Jesus, at the end, she is honored as the one who showed them the Messiah. She comes to the well thirsty she leaves fully satisfied. Jesus exposed her sin and her shame, and yet he loved her and gave her the hope of new life in him. Jesus, 
the I am, the God, the Messiah, is the only well that can quench our thirsts. So why do we look in every other well when only he can satisfy? Let's pray. God, our God, may we earnestly seek you. May we hunger and thirst for you. May our soul thirst for you more than our bodies if we were in a dry and weary land where there is no water. May we look to you in your son, Jesus Christ, Behold the God of power, of holiness, and of mercy and love. Because, Lord, your steadfast love is better than life, may we praise you all of our days. Amen. to the fountain.